This month, The Spectator becomes the first magazine in history to print 10,000 issues, and we'd like to celebrate with you. Subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a bottle of commemorative Spectator gin, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash celebrate. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator and the editor of its US edition. We thought that 2020 was going to be all about the presidential election, but now it will forever be the year of the pandemic. So instead, Americano is going to look at how COVID-19 is transforming the United States and its politics. There's a lot to talk about, perhaps even more so than before. So please keep tuning in. I'm joined today by Kevin Gutzman, who is Professor of History at Western Connecticut State University. And we're going to be asking, could the 2020 presidential election be postponed? Now, Kevin, there's been a fair bit of chatter about this. Usually, the press says the answer is no, the election probably won't be postponed. But nonetheless, you see certain commentators suggesting, and even Joe Biden himself suggesting, that Donald Trump is going to, by hook or by crook, find a way to postpone this election because he's so frightened about losing it. What do you say when Joe Biden says something like that? Well, there are a couple of hard deadlines or dates that are set either in statute or in the Constitution. The U.S. Constitution says that the new president will be inaugurated on January 20th of 2021. And we've had for over a century now a common date for the popular elections across the country by which state electors are allocated. And of course, it's the Electoral College that actually elects the president. So I don't see any play in that. The Congress would have to change the date of the elections, whether they're popular or, as used to be the case commonly by state legislatures, for the electors that is the members of the Electoral College. And then, as I said, there's a hard constitutional deadline for the president's, there's a hard date for the president's inauguration. So I don't see that there's any way to change any of that, at least in the president's discretion, although Congress or state legislators could solo or in tandem make changes to at least the popular portion of the process. Do you think it's a kind of fear-mongering fantasy then among certain Democrats to to sort of suggest that Trump is going to turn into a dictator and perhaps use the health crisis of the moment to seize power? We've had that all along. We've had them telling us for nearly four years now that there was going to be an end to popular government now that Trump was president. There have been various prognostications and and there have been various accusations, the ones that were susceptible of disproof having already been disproven, they've now moved on to this. And I don't see any indication of an inclination in this direction from Trump. But again, there's been a lot of talk about this kind of thing from his partisan opposition. And in fact, the latest news, of course, is that the entire steel dossier that was at the root of the Trump-Russia collusion talk investigation scandal for years, which we know was actually funded by the Hillary Clinton campaign, 
had some involvement of the Russian government. So it was actually the Democrats who were accusing Trump of collaborating with the Russians, who were collaborating with the Russians in spreading this myth of Trump collaborating with the Russians. It's, it's absurd. What we end up with in the United States at the moment is a choice between a president whose public rhetoric is just off the charts unusual as far as the behavior of American presidents has gone on one hand, and on the other hand, this completely unhinged opposition party. So take your choice. But anyway, the, the bottom line is I don't think that it's possible, it's feasible that the president unilaterally is going to delay any portion of our electoral process. And in fact, I think that if he made any move in that direction, there would be immediate bipartisan opposition in Congress. And of course, in our system, ultimately the president serves at the will of Congress. It's very difficult, very unusual for them to decide to remove him but in my lifetime, the president actually ended up resigning because Congress had resolved to remove him from office. That was Richard Nixon. And I think any indication that the current president intended anything like what you implied would lead to his being removed from office. I don't think there's going to be any delay, no. And of course, Biden, one thing to notice here is, I don't know whether you're aware of this, but Biden has increasingly in recent months seemed like a dotard in public appearances and his campaign has decided to limit his public appearances very powerfully and it's become a sort of virtual candidacy hasn't it yeah so whipping up the partisan hysteria that the democratic party has been encouraging for the last four years really seems to be the first of all the way that the biden candidacy can get any attention right now on one hand, and on the other hand, it seems to be the most promising avenue for actually defeating the incumbent. Biden is in this very awkward situation in which, of course, the incumbent president commands the media, even though the media are, are overwhelmingly hostile to him. He can have access to media outlets at any moment and takes advantage of this daily. And on the other hand, the former vice president, his opponent in the coming fall election can't get any attention. So he can't meet with media people in, you know, the, the traditional way that the out person gets attention is by going around and meeting with editorial boards of major newspapers, giving public addresses in, in major cities, traveling to economically significant sites in rural areas. Biden can't do any of these things right now. And there's no indication of any time when he'll be able to do them. So it's really a very uncomfortable position he's in and his party is in. Yes. Well, let's let's get back to the to the idea of the delay. Let's say the worst thing happens. You know, there's a sort of there's a second or third wave of this virus. It's incredibly bad. Nobody can leave their homes. Mail in balloting only accounts for a small percentage of, of the votes registered. And the election is kind of effectively void in some way. As you suggested, Trump's term constitutionally has to end, doesn't it? Yes. On, I think it is... January 20th. January 20th, yeah. And so does Mike Pence's. So what, constitutionally, what could happen in that scenario? Well, if there were not an election, the state 
legislatures could decide to, that is if they were not popular voting, the state legislatures still have it in their power to decide how to allocate their electors. And people may not be familiar with this fact, but when George Washington was inaugurated as the first president under our current constitution, there were 11 states in the union, two of the original 13 not yet having agreed to live under the constitution. There were 11 states in the union and there were popular votes, as I recall, in only three of them. So you have state legislators saying by resolution, our electoral votes are hereby cast for George, or going to be cast for George Washington. And as the decades rolled on from 1789, there were a declining number of states that were still doing that, but the last one to do it was South Carolina in 1868. So you have what is that, 20 presidential elections in which, 21 presidential elections, in which state legislators are casting electoral votes. And they can still do that now. They can they can decide, okay, there's a, a an emergency, say theoretically, they decided that it was impossible because of the contagion to have a popular vote. The, the Connecticut legislature could just decide, okay, we're not going to have a popular election for president. We're just going to cast our electoral votes for our preferred candidate. And of course, my state legislature would vote for Biden or whichever the Democratic candidate was. And I suppose that would probably happen in at least some states. That would fall to the governor then to make the decision, or would it be a democratic process within the legislature? It's the legislature that decides how the state electors will be allocated. There is no national, that is, there is no federal requirement that there be any popular voting in other words, constitutionally, it's still within the state legislature's prerogative to decide that they would cast electoral votes the way they originally mostly did. Not only that, they could also decide, well, we're going to have some share of our legislature, I mean, of our electoral votes cast this way and some share cast another way. That also used to be the way they did it. And in fact, we we have some states now where in general, the way this works is that states get a number of electoral votes that's equal to the number of their members in the U.S. House of Representatives plus two for their senators. So my state of Connecticut has five U.S. representatives plus two senators. We get seven electoral votes. Some, most states cast these on a statewide basis. So we just have a statewide popular election to decide who gets our seven electoral votes. But there are a couple of states Maine and Nebraska that don't do it that way. That is, they have district voting and a statewide tally to decide how to cast these votes. In other words, even though there's not as much diversity in the methods as there originally was, there's still some diversity here. And again, I think state legislatures could step in, say it's impossible to have statewide popular vote and decide to cast them themselves. That, that actually is what I would think would probably happen. And in that scenario, things could get pretty messy, particularly in a country as divided as America is at the moment politically. Oh, certainly. I think that Trump's partisan opponents would immediately say, this is what we've been telling you would happen all along. We told you he was an incipient dictator. And what kind of response could there be to that? So we've already had people in the streets threatening, had assaults on reporters and just pretty nasty rhetoric. We had a, the day after Trump's inauguration, we had a public march in which the 
famous pop singer Madonna said that she had dreamed of blowing up the White House and the, actually the FBI director's wife and daughters were in attendance and nothing came of that. If you and I said in public we're dreaming of blowing up the White House, we'd find ourselves talking seriously to the FBI. This kind of thing has been going on from the beginning and even before Trump's inauguration. And I think th there's no way to predict what the result of that would be. That, And I don't think there would be widespread support among Trump's co-partisans in Congress for this. I don't think they would be on board at all. In fact, I don't, I don't think any of them would be on board with that. So that's, even if Trump were inclined in that direction, which I have seen no indication that he was, I don't think it's feasible within our system. It's not feasible. You might think, well, who needs Congress's support? He's the head of the military. This is the way it works in some third world countries. But our military's core tradition is, you know, George Washington retired twice spectacularly and they're subordinate to the civilians in the Constitution. So I don't think they would go along either. I just don't think it's feasible. I don't think there's any way Trump could could, could even imagine himself overthrowing the Constitution. I certainly think, you know, when people, I think it sort of sounds hysterical when people start talking about it as a sort of military coup is on the cards. Right. Because, because you imagine, I mean, if Trump sat down with the generals and said, right, we're going to take over Washington, which I don't think he would do, right. even right. if he were to do that, I just can't see the generals going, OK, sir, let's go. I think the generals no. are saying no. <laughs> it's their, their core principle is they're subordinate to civilians and we have a Republican system. So there's it's not... Argentina, you know, it's not, it's not Russia. It's just not even something that I can quite wrap my mind around. I, I don't think it's possible. But nonetheless, the American system does need these elections, doesn't it? Because, I mean, the Constitution yes. demands elections. And, and if and if they don't happen, then as as we've been discussing, things could fall apart pretty quickly. And that's why even in the middle of a civil war, America went to the ballot before, didn't it? Right? Yes. So there have been all kinds of difficulties that have seen us have elections. We had an election in the middle of World War II, too, you know, and situation in which the president unilaterally opted for staying on just, I think the only way you could imagine that this kind of thing could happen would be if the Democrats' leadership in Congress went and told Trump, we need to delay the election. If the opposition party said, there's just no way to have voting in Los Angeles right now, we can't do it, maybe that could happen. But I, of course, that's never going to happen. <laughs> so they just loathe them. It's, it's hard to exaggerate the extent to which they loathe them. And of course, it's, it's something we've become accustomed to now, especially when there's a Republican president that the Democrats just hate the guy. People think this is unexampled, our current animosity, but I remember during the Reagan administration, I'm, I'm barely old enough to remember the Nixon presidency, which, of course, was also hyper-focused on his personality and so on in the media and, and among people in the streets. And But there is this tendency in our politics just to loathe the incumbent. And so I can't imagine any scenario in which Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer would go say, well, we need to wait another six months before we can actually have voting in Manhattan. But but you know, as a constitutional a, expert, take me through, a, let, let's say that incredibly implausible scenario happens. 
and that Pelosi yeah. goes to Trump and says, we need to come up with an agreement together. And Trump agrees. Uh-huh. So, I know it sounds mad. <laughs> Bear with me. And, they, and then so they decide to delay the election. Would they then agree? Could Congress then agree to extend Trump's term until, in theory, I know this is very unrealistic, until the next election? There is no constitutional provision for this. There, it would just have to be an ad hoc arrangement on the ground that that we have this spectacularly anomalous situation that means we have to kind of say the Constitution's being set in abeyance. But we've never had anything like that before. And I think there would just be so much opposition to it from not only from within the Democratic Party, but, you know, the, one of the core principles of the Republican Party is being sticklers for the Constitution. I mean, there was significant voting after the last, I mean, significant polling after the last election that showed that one of the three main reasons people voted for Trump was that they thought he would appoint judges who were serious about the Constitution, unlike Democratic appointed judges who tend to take kind of a free form approach to it. So... I, I just don't see this coming together. Do you, do you think that, I mean, the, Amer- the democratic solution, the one that Nancy Pelosi seems to be keen on, is that if we're, the crisis is as bad or perhaps even worse in November, that mail-in ballots are a solution and you, and you could just expand the franchise so that every state would have total mail-in ballots. Trump has said he thinks they're corrupt, but he will allow them for the military and the very elderly, I think, two groups that happen to vote tend to vote Republican. I mean, do you think a mail-in only ballot election is feasible? Well, we one partial explanation for the position the president takes in regard to the military is that that's the way it's been done for decades now. And, you know, I'm actually an army brat. That's what we call such people in the United States. I'm the son of an army officer. And so when I was a child, we lived all over the country and outside the country. And my father voted in his home state, even though he hadn't lived there since he was 18. He voted in his home state my entire childhood. And there's no no other way you could do it. You know, we lived in the Panama Canal Zone. How is he going to go to Idaho and vote? Well, he can't. On the other hand, you know, the, the possibility of election fraud, if you have mail-in voting, is not just hypothetical. So, for example, we've we've got some states where they do have mail-in voting for statewide elections. And there are stories of, for example, in Oregon, which is one of the first states to have mail-in voting, of fraternities that is a certain kind of affiliation in associated with American universities having stacks of mail-in ballots show up in the mailbox and the fraternity president casting them all, that is, deciding that he would fill all of his fraternity brothers ballots out and just mail them back himself so he cast in other words he cast 31 votes for his preferred candidates this is what you'd expect and actually people in britain may be unfamiliar with this but we have some cities in america where we routinely have electoral fraud i mean for example in philadelphia which is the main city in pennsylvania one of the largest in the colonial period it was largest town in the united states where we routinely have more people vote in the city than there are registered voters in the city. That is, this just happens every time. And there are, there are similar boroughs in St. Louis, another one of the major cities in the United States, and so on. And, and it happens that these places that are hotbeds of this kind of thing 
are all controlled by the Democrats. There, that is, having more people vote than live there only happens in Democratic precincts. So this is this, even if they weren't actual sticklers for the idea that voting should be legitimate, the fact that it's partisan that this happens is going to mean that Republicans are never going to decide they want mail-in ballots. Trump isn't being hysterical, you're saying, by... by no, it's not novel. Or irrational or, or selfish. It's a very old Republican uh, position to oppose the idea of having all mail-in ballots. And why do you think the Democrats... I don't, I don't want to get into your sort of personal politics, but why do you think the Democrats do tend to be more corrupt? Is it because city politics tends to be more corrupt? Is it yes. because the Democrats feel that they're on the side of justice and therefore fudging the elections is justified if, if it means they win? Is it both? Well, it's, <laughs> there is a kind of identification of one way to understand our party divide in the United States is that it may change substantively, but as far as people's felt identification with parties goes, it's very emotional. There's a feeling that well, this is clearly the moral position to take. It's not only the Democrats who feel that way, right? So, in fact, we have a couple of small third parties in which people feel that you know way about their parties too. It's not only Democrats and Republicans. So people come to have these uh, affiliations, and then they come to see them as the the affiliations of goodness and light. And of course, anybody who's outside the tent, there be dragons out there, you know. So. That's why I think. But oh, historically, it was the Democratic Party that was organized first from the bottom. You know, the Democratic Party is several decades older than the Republican Party. And it used to be organized on the most local level and pyramidally. Now, they're, both parties are more or less run from Washington. But in the old days, you had precinct captains and wards and a kind of pyramid within each major city. And we had serious corruption, then again, associated with the Democratic Party. So for example, Tammany Hall was the name of the, the organization in New York City, and it famously controlled the votes of the entire town of New York. And Chicago is the uh, another place that has the same kind of history, where you have people who were ward chairmen who decided who the mayor, who would be the mayor, and then you, when I lived in Chicago at the beginning of the 1990s, Mayor Daley, who had been the mayor of Chicago for decades up to the famous 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, his son was the mayor of Chicago when I was there. And then that mayor of Chicago's brother ended up being in Bill Clinton's cabinet, and then he ended up being a top official of the National Democratic Party. So you have just this huge network of affiliations. The Republican Party doesn't really have the same kind of tradition of people working in the structure of the party. You have dynasties of elected officials in the Republican Party, but you don't have dynasties of party operatives in the same way. And I think that's not an accident. Is it that the Republican corruption's at the top and the Democratic corruption comes from the bottom? I don't know. Well, the Republican corruption... <laughs> The Republicans actually are responsible for creating several of the cabinet agencies in the federal government, and then they generally hand out boodle to major corporations. So, for example, our, our Department of Commerce 
essentially just gives huge gifts of taxpayer money to major corporations every year. And that was created by the Republicans. So there are different but similarly corrupt structures that are associated with the Republican Party, too. They don't have to do notice with mail-in ballots, right? The, getting control of the Department of Commerce has nothing to do with mail-in ballots. On the other hand, phoning up the voting, that is an old Democratic Party tradition. Kevin, I hope for your sake and for America's that the election is not delayed. Then, Well, I don't expect it will be. Then we have the question, of course, which of these two guys are we going to vote for? <laughs> That's another issue. One is, uh, as I said before, rather cringe-inducing in his public rhetoric, and the other one seems to be, frankly, in the early stages of senility. So it's a very unpleasant situation we're in. Nobody said late democracy would be pretty. No. <laughs> Kevin, we'll, we'll leave it there, but thank you very much for joining us today, and um, uh, stay well. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano. And I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback, positive comments or constructive comments only, please, to podcast at spectator.co.uk and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite. (laughs) 